0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 5. We're going to do verses 12 through 16 and talk about the healing of a leper. Very big miracle. And then we're going to continue in Luke 5 and talk about the healing of the paralytic, Lord, through the roof of Peter's house. That's in Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. I'll have to pick up in the case of the healing of the leper, we'll look at the parallel passages in. Mark one forty through forty-five and especially Matthew eight two through four. And in fact, I'm just since I've already discussed this in Matthew eight, I am going to splice in my audio of Matthew eight and its detailed discussion of the healing of the leper. That splice begins now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Matthew chapter eight verses one and two says this. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with a serious skin disease came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The mountain that Jesus came down from was the mountain on which he gave the Sermon on the Mount. The mountain is unknown. We don't know where it is today. The sermon apparently attracted large crowds because there were large crowds following him. So it's the sermon, the the incredible teaching on that sermon that got a lot of people to follow Jesus. Right away, a man with a serious skin disease. was a serious skin disease? Well, the old translations had leprosy. In fact, the NIV has leprosy. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible here. The Greek word was used for various diseases affecting the skin. is not necessarily what we call leprosy today. But whatever disease it was, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, it was loathsome, diffusive, and incurable, making it a good symbol for sin. Now, the man knelt, the, the leper, the man with a serious skin disease, he knelt before Jesus. Was he worshiping Jesus as God? Or was it was he just giving him honor as a human being? This is early in Jesus' ministry now, and the ideas of who the Messiah is are very, very fuzzy. Well, it's not an obvious question. Uh, according to John Gill, Jameson Foster and Brown said, yes, he, the leper was worshiping Jesus as God. And I guess that makes sense. you got a man going around teaching like that and healing people all over the place. You would tend to think he was divine in some sense. But at any rate, he knelt down before Jesus. Now, here's some parallels here in Luke chapter 5 and 12, Mark 1 and 40, the synoptic passages. Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says this. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. And that little detail there shows that the leprosy was... He was covered from head to toe. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. There's another little detail. He begged him. Didn't just ask him. He begged him. And Mark 1.40 says the same thing as Luke 5. Now, the fact that this man came down and begged showed that he had remarkable faith. Jesus hadn't said anything about healing leprosy, as John Gill points out. And apparently the man had never seen a healing of leprosy. And in fact, this is the only cure of leprosy recorded by the Synoptic Gospels. Leprosy was an incurable disease. It was an incredible miracle to heal leprosy. The man had never seen it. He had never heard of it. And yet he had enough faith in Jesus to say, you can heal it. This is probably the first case of a healing of leprosy. So. The man had a lot of faith. And let's talk about that. Did Jesus, does Jesus heal more readily when the recipient of the healing shows more faith? I don't see how you can deny it. We'll see that as we go down in, in chapter 8. Uh, we'll, we'll see that, that faith has a big impact upon Jesus' desire to, to do a miracle, to heal us, or to heal people. All right, let's, let's talk about this word willing. The leper said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper was extremely modest. If you are wi- willing, you can make me clean. The leper knew that Jesus had the power to heal, heal him, but he didn't know if the leper wanted to, if Jesus wanted to heal him. Maybe it's because he felt so low and unworthy as a leper. Lepers, The Levitical requirements for lepers made lepers end up being very, 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 low caste. They had to walk through the streets with their clothes loose, their hair hanging down, their hands in front of their mouths yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. Then they were quarantine and had to live outside of civilized society. It was a terrible, terrible situation. The point of that was to protect the population from the spread of the leprosy. Well, naturally, that's going to make somebody feel pretty unworthy, and yet he came up and says, Jesus, if you're willing, please heal me. Now, the man really wanted to get healed from his leprosy. Jesus said he was willing, and I like to point this out to cessationists who always gripe that, A, people are coming for the healing. They're not coming for the person of Jesus. They don't love Jesus enough because they want to get healed. I don't know. You tell that to the leper. Every time I hear it, it just raises hackles in my soul to think that somebody would say that. You ever been sick? Man, if you've been sick, you better go to Jesus especially when the doctors can't cure you and leprosy was an incurable disease. Matthew chapter 8 verses 3 through 4, reaching out his hand, he touched him. He, Jesus, touched the leper, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately his disease was healed. Then Jesus told him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses prescribed as a testimony to them. First of all, we note that Jesus touched the leper. Well, that immediately made him unclean. He didn't care if he, was, if he was made Levitically unclean, ceremonially unclean. It didn't matter. He had more compassion than worrying about whether he was clean or not. Now, some people say that that shows that he broke the law. I don't think it means he broke the law because, after all, the law says, if, for example, if you touch a dead person, like at a funeral or something, you're unclean. It didn't mean you broke the law. It just means you're, you're ritually unclean for a while and you can't offer a sacrifice. So, uh, but there is another place where Jesus said um, he he called the, the 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 utensils clean, thus thus putting uh, putting an end to the validity of the mosaic law by declaring declaring not cups, declaring foods clean. I don't have that scripture off the top of my head, but Jesus didn't have any problems with breaking the law. But I don't think he broke the law here. See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. So the question is, is why would he te- Jesus tell the leper don't tell anybody? Well, let me give you the standard answer to that. The people had false notions about the Messiah. They were expecting a military hero to come riding on a white horse to conquer the Romans. Jesus is just starting out his ministry. If he got proclaimed Messiah that quick, they would continue to think that. He didn't have. He, he needed three years to teach his disciples, Look, I am not a military Messiah. We're not going to start a revolution against Rome. Now, if he had not have stopped that kind of talk... There would have been a revolt. The Jews would have come down and tried to stop it. They would have got the Romans to stop it. And there would have been a bunch of people killed, including Jesus, and you and I would be going to hell. It was very important that he keep it quiet. Also, the NIV Study Bible points that out. Also, the NIV Study Bible has another interesting point. It said that Jesus had a strict schedule to keep. He was going around trying to minister to all the cities, and if he got stuck on one place because of all the crowds, all the other cities wouldn't receive his ministry. And another possible reason, according to the NIV Study Bible, is Jesus didn't want to be considered just a miracle worker. He was interested in his teaching as well as his healing. And so if people got so excited over the the healing that it hindered his ability to teach, then it would mess his ministry up. Also, the NIV Study Bible says that Jesus didn't want to be killed prematurely. The Jewish authorities would naturally see such a popular teacher as a threat, says Adam Clark. And so and I say that the preparation time for the disciples would be cut short, And since Jesus was so explicit here uh, about his healing and so forth and his teaching, it would be normal for the disciples to start talking up messiahship. So Jesus wanted to stop all that. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but I'm going to throw a little fly in the woman here in just a minute. But first of all, let's go through the scriptures that show that Jesus, in many occasions, told the people, don't tell anybody about this. Matthew nine thirty, and their eyes were opened, and Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Matthew 12, verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. Mark one forty four telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. I think that's a parallel to to this passage in Matthew 8. Mark 5, verse 43, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and that she should be given something to eat. Mark 7, 36, then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. Luke 8, 56, her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So this was Jesus' modus operandi, He would uh, say, he would heal somebody and say, don't tell anybody. Okay, for all the reasons that I just gave, he didn't want to have a premature political revolt on his hands. He told everybody to keep quiet. That makes a lot of sense. But John Gill, as I said, was going to throw a fly in the ointment. What is the point of telling everybody to be quiet since the miracle was done in front of large crowds? The large crowds that followed Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. And since the large crowds already knew, what's the point of keeping it quiet? Well, John Gill's solution to that little problem is this, that he was, he says that Jesus wasn't concerned about the crowds knowing he was concerned about the priest in Jerusalem knowing. In other words, Jesus told the leper, go get clean, cleansed, but don't tell the priest down there in Jerusalem who, who healed you. Just say, I'm healed of leprosy and let them go through the ritual. Because if, if you tell them that it was me, Jesus, they hate me. And they're not going to give you the ritual, and they're not going to pronounce you clean. And of course, this was extremely important to a leper, because if you're not clean, you can't live a civilized life in civilized society. You have to remain quarantined in the leper colony. So Jesus, according to Gill, was just showing compassion for the priest. Well, if you take that view, and I don't, if John Gill is right, that means all these other reasons that people traditionally give about Jesus not wanting to tell anybody because he wanted to prevent a premature proclamation of his Messiahship, well, then you have to completely throw all those reasons out the door because Jesus is trying not to protect his ministry. He's trying to protect the leper. Well, how do we solve this problem? I think, in my humble opinion, that even though a leper is healed in front of large crowds, those large crowds aren't going to be able to see exactly what happened. They, The people around the leper might see, but you're talking about large crowds pressing up. They can't see what's going on up at the front. And uh, so I think that's the answer right there. Jesus is saying, look, I healed you. Don't tell anybody because I don't want to get killed prematurely. Now, it didn't matter as it turned out. The man disobeyed Jesus. We look at the parallel passages in Mark chapter one, verse 45. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they would come to him from everywhere. So it didn't work. The crowds kept coming. So Jesus just quit going to the towns. He ended up going into the wilderness out in the, in the mountains and places like that where the crowds couldn't find him. Now, two things made Jesus withdraw from the towns. First of all, his growing popularity. The scriptures show that he's getting more and more popular. Mark 1, news about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee, Mark chapter 3, verses 7-8, through 8. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jer- Jerusalem, notice even from the south, they're coming up to the north here, Idumea, which is even further south of Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan is to the east, and around Tyre and Sidon is to the northwest, they were coming from everywhere. Jesus was making a huge splash. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Luke chapter seven verse seventeen. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. So that was one reason he was getting so popular. He couldn't couldn't function because of the crowds. The other reason he withdrew from the towns and went to the wilderness is because of the growing resistance of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Here's some scriptures showing that. Mark chapter two verses six through seven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Mark, chapter 2, verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, they were Pharisees up north, too, in Galilee, as well as in the south. I think I read somewhere. So I'm not going through the context of all these verses. Some of it could be in Galilee. Some of it could be in Jerusalem. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Mark chapter 3, verse 2. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Mark 3, verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said there's your answer right there i've told you about people coming from jerusalem up to galilee to see what was going on here's an example of that the scribes who had come down from jerusalem said he has beelzebul in him the lord of the flies the devil's devil and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons." so jesus has already got people loving him and hating him and that's typically what happens when the word of the gospel goes out people either love it or they hate it now why did this man tell well perhaps he had good intentions maybe he wanted to spread the news this leper to help Jesus' ministry or maybe it was just he was so joyful in his heart he wanted to testify to God's goodness he just couldn't keep quiet about it but he did disobey Jesus. All right now why did Jesus want the leper to show himself to the priest? Here's five good reasons given by the NIV, given by my NIV study Bible on Luke on, this is on the parallel passage. First of all, to show that Jesus desires to keep the law, that he was not really, he was not a lawbreaker, he tried to keep the law. Now, I will say this, Jesus did keep the law most of the time, and he said that one, not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away in Matthew chapter 5, but he did declare some foods clean, which weren't clean by the law. So we've got to balance those two things out. I think Jesus generally wanted to keep the law, but if push came to shove, if keeping that law ritually got in the way of... Jesus's compassion for somebody, Jesus would say, hey, he has the right to break the law. He's the new lawgiver to provide. Uh, but anyway, that's the first reason to, uh, that he wanted the leper to go down to the priest to say, say, look, I'm not trying to overthrow the priestly kingdom here, the priestly rule. I'm not trying to be a revolutionary. The leper's keeping the law. I'm urging him to keep the law. The second reason was to provide further objective proof of the healing, because if the priest went through the ceremony that they would be saying we approve of this healing we approve that jesus healed somebody which of course is against what the pharisees normally would uh, like to do also the third reason that jesus told him to go down there perhaps was to testify to the authorities of his ministry look i am preaching the gospel of the kingdom you need to know what's going on well i don't know about that that seems to cut against the idea he's trying to keep it quiet Fifth reason that my NIV study Bible suggests is to show that Jesus was divine, to prove to the Jewish rabbis and scribes down there in Jerusalem that Jesus was the Son of God, because only God had the power to heal leprosy, and he healed leprosy. All right, so those, for whatever reasons, uh, the, and these are all speculations, of course, Jesus sent him down there to, get, to go through the leprosy, cleansing of leprosy ritual. Now, Jesus did not make a further trial of faith for the man. He didn't need to. The man showed so much faith. You know, sometimes Jesus would do that when the rich young ruler came to him and Jesus looked at him and says, mm, I don't think this guy's ready for prime time. I don't think he's ready to be my disciple. Uh, why don't you give all your stuff away? So he tested him to make sure to see. Of course, the rich young ruler failed the test. But he, he, Jesus didn't need to do that with this leper because he came to him. He was a social outcast. He, he bowed down to him and says, please, I'm begging you, heal me. He, without having any evidence that Jesus had ever healed an uncurable disease like leprosy before. Mark adds an interesting detail in the parallel passage in this incident. Mark chapter 1, verse 41 says this, Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Moved with compassion. It's another reason for the healings. They're not just signs of the kingdom to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah about you see the lame walking and the deaf hearing. Know that the what is it the time, what is it the day of jubilee has arrived. I forgot. But the, the messianic kingdom has come. When you see all these miracles and John talks about miracles being signposts that point to heaven, that's absolutely true. But there's another motive that Jesus had for healing people is because he loved them. He loved them, and I really wish these people who talk about all the fake healings and all the fake faith healers think about. Let's say the 99% of them are fake. What about the one person that's healed of cancer or healed of uh, Alzheimer's or some horrible disease, or healed of mental illness? That is something we should be jumping up and down with joy for because it is a compassionate thing to see a sick person heal. That's why we love these stories when people get healed, either in the hospital but by unexplained medical reasons or by miracles or however. We, we love it because we care about people that are sick. Jesus tells the leper to offer the gift, the sacrifice that was involved in this cleansing ritual in Leviticus 14 and 15, where you had to offer doves and pigeons, sometimes a lamb, and that's what he's talking about. And then he tells the leper to go in verse 4. It seems the leper wanted to stay with Jesus and keep tagging along, but Jesus says, No, 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 go down to Jerusalem, just don't tag along with my ministry here. You've got important things to do down there. All right, I'm returning back from my splice of Matthew eight verses two through four, the healing of the leper. We've so now covered Luke five twelve through sixteen. We'll now take up Luke five, seventeen through twenty six, the healing of the paralytic lowered through the roof of Peter's house. Now that's covered in detail in Matthew nine one through eight, so I will splice in my discussion there of Matthew nine one through eight, and that splice begins now. Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies. I'm taking up Matthew chapter 9 here. We're going to see Jesus healing a paralytic let down through a roof. This is back in Capernaum, near Capernaum, north of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew chapter 9 verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. He got into a boat while he was over there in Gadara on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. The the so is there, is because the residents there requested him to leave because they were scared of him as we read in chapter 8 and because they requested him to leave so he got into a boat and crossed over that's probably the same boat he came over there from Capernaum to start with he crossed back over going from southeast to northwest ended up back in his own town of Capernaum where of course he is a where he has established his headquarters now this was probably at Peter's house because we know before he went to Gadara that in Mark chapter one, verse 21 says, then they went into Capernaum and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and then began to teach. Eight verses later in Mark chapter one, as soon as they left the synagogue, he went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. So Simon and Andrew living there was Simon's wife and mother and that's where Jesus was living too. So there's our background. As we go to verse 2, Matthew 9, verse 2, just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this verse says some men, Mark, who is great at adding details, Mark chapter 2, verse 3 says, then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. So we got four men carrying this paralytic lying on a mat, and we know, too, that through the parallels that they cut open a, uh, something in the roof and dropped him down in the front of the crowd in front of Jesus through the roof. Now, Jesus saw their faith. Who's the there? He saw the faith, not only the paralytic, but also the people who were carrying the paralytic because they went to a lot of trouble to get this paralytic in front of Jesus's attention. Now, Jesus said, he saw their faith. This is another example of where Jesus positively responds to others' faith in him, like the centurion with the sick slaves, such faith I've never seen in Israel. There is a question. There is a connection. There is no question that there is a connection between one's faith and Jesus' actions. For example, Nazareth, he saw no faith, and therefore he did no miracles. Now, I realize that that is emphasized by people in the word faith message. I do not agree with that message. I think it's extraordinarily screwed up but all false teachings have a grain a kernel of truth and that's one kernel of truth jesus does respond to our faith you can't deny it it's in the bible how did jesus see their faith because jesus saw them take the tiles off the roof and lower the man into the house as we've learned from mark and Luther in the synoptic parallels jesus calls him son your sins are forgiven in luke 5:20 jesus calls him friend your sins are forgiven this is just a friendly appellation we do this in english we say son let's say usually an older man to a younger man son Come on, take your place in line here. I'll let you cut in. It's the same thing as saying, friend, let you come on in. I'll let you cut in. That's all. It's a friendly appellation. He said, Jesus then said an amazing thing. Your sins are forgiven. They didn't ask for their sins to be forgiven. They were trying to get, healed from, get the man healed from paralysis. It's amazing in the light of the man's obvious physical need, Jesus tended to his sin problem. And this illustrates how bad mankind's sin problem is. I mean, sin problem is every bit as bad as being paralyzed physically, and there's hardly anything worse than being paralyzed physically. Now, Jesus may have actually been connecting the man's sin to the paralysis. In other words, the reason he's paralyzed is because he's sinful. Gill and Clark bring up this possibility. Now, that might be so, but we have to be careful not to universalize that principle that all sicknesses are due to someone's sin. Some might be, but listen to this passage in Luke chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus is talking, are those 18 that the tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't blame that tower falling on those uh, 18 people that got killed. Things happen, and it's not necessarily because of sin. And of course, that brings to mind Job. His false friends wrongly blamed all of his sickness on his sins, and they were entirely wrong. Now, it's interesting when Jesus forgave the man's sins, he did it without a confession of faith in Jesus. Nowhere does it say that the paralytic says, I believe in you, Jesus. Well, I suppose that the act of tearing up the roof and dropping the man down there and the man obviously wanting to get to Jesus, that was faith enough. That was confession enough. I believe you, Jesus. If you, I guess he figured if he believed him, that he could heal him of paralysis, he could heal him of his sins too. Now, verse 3. At this, that means when Jesus said, I forgive you of your sins, Mr. Paralytic. At this, some of the scribes said among themselves, he's blaspheming. What does blaspheming mean? Clark gives a definition of to speak impiously of his nature or attributes or works. It just means to say nasty things about God, which is about one of the worst things that someone can do. Now, some of the scribes, and the parallel passage says scribes and Pharisees, Remember, all scribes were not Pharisees, and all Pharisees were not scribes, but a lot of scribes were both scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones that were responsible for copying scriptural text and for passing the traditions along, and so they got to be learned and pedantic and arrogant And they were the preservers of the Jewish faith. And they said among themselves, not to Jesus directly, but among themselves, he's blaspheming. Why? Because he said that he had the power to forgive sins. Now, the punishment for blasphemy was death. So this was a serious charge. Leviticus 24, verse 16 says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death whether the foreign resident or the native, the proselyte or the native, or the alien, excuse me, the alien or the native. Anybody that blasphemes God, that's a no-no. That's an ultimate no-no in the commonwealth of Israel. You don't blaspheme God, and this is what the scribes were accusing Jesus. But they didn't have enough guts to say it to his face. Now, why didn't they? They were scared to accuse Jesus publicly because Jesus was too popular. He had got crowds from all over the place coming to him, and he had... St- Still to the storm on the sea. He had cast out demons. He, well, he just healed a, paral- a paralytic, which is not the easiest thing in the world. He had healed a leper before he went over to Gadara, not to mention the uh, man full of demons in, in Gadara. He was just, he, he was too big a, a, a sensation for the scribes and Pharisees to get in his face and accuse him. The people would turn on him. And so they just grumbled among themselves. All right, so let's go to verse 4 in Matthew 9 and read 4 through 8. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. First question, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said. How did he perceive their thoughts, that they were accusing him of blasphemy? Here are some options. He could have just observed their attitude naturally like a man, just look at them and see the malicious look on their face. Or he could know miraculously as God, as John Gill and Adam Clark think. The Jews said that only the Messiah could know the thoughts of men. In other words, their Messiah detector test was, tell us what we're thinking now. And if if the alleged Messiah... If the Messiah want to be, he couldn't tell the Pharisees what they were thinking. He was therefore, he had therefore proved that he was a false Messiah. All right. So if that were the case, that the Pharisees were doing this, Jesus would, and if it's true that he actually read their thoughts as God, then he, he beat their Messiah, their fake Messiah test and prove that he was the true Messiah by reading their thoughts. Or he could have just looked at their face and tell, I, you know, all these things are impossible to answer whether Jesus is operating as god or whether he's operating as man but at any rate he knew what they're thinking about him so he looks at him and he says what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or say get up and walk now what jesus did here is he set him up he set himself up big time because he had to make that man get up and walk down because he had to do that to back up his claim that he could forgive sins because you could say somebody's sins are forgiven but how are you going to prove it you can't prove that a man's sins are forgiven that that's a invisible transaction between the man and god which nobody can see with their eyes. But you can see somebody get up and walk. So in order to prove that he was the Messiah to these, to these, uh, doubting Pharisees, he told the man, get up. And uh, he was going to get ready to tell the man, get up and walk. And then he says, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees. I'm telling you guys, I'm God. I can forgive sins. But you know, the Pharisees didn't even believe the Messiah had the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus said, I got more than I'm I'm going to tell you more than what the Messiah can do. I'm going to forgive sins. And I'm going to prove to you that I can forgive sins because I'm going to make this paralytic get up and walk. Now you see why Jesus was causing such a stir. This was not any ordinary rabbi or any ordinary prophet that had showed up. This is why he completely eclipsed John the Baptist doing stuff like this. Why did he call himself the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a messianic title. Uh, It's Jesus' most common title for himself, as the NIV Study Bible says. It's used 81 times in the Gospel, says the NIV Study Bible. It's never used by anyone else in the Gospel, only Jesus. We'll find out later. Stephen and Acts did call him the Son of Man, but this is basically his title. Why did he use that title to show that he was the Messiah? Well, because the title was Messianic. We see this in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, and this means coming up, not coming down, but coming up unto the throne of God. He, the Son of Man, approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Father, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So we see here the Son is taking authority from his Father, and Jesus was the son of God. He's taken authority from his father to be the son of God, to be the Messiah. So that's why Jesus used that phrase. Actually, we can also determine this by, another, by the context in Mark chapter 8. In another situation, Jesus said to the disciples, but you, he asked them again, well, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And then the ver- two verses later, Jesus starts talking about the son of man, answering Peter's affirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. Mark 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. So Jesus knew what he was talking about when he called himself the Son of Man. Now this title is actually kind of interesting where it came from. Remember, it was in Daniel, the only place that you can find it in the Old Testament is Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Here is a synopsis of a lot of information I called from the internet. I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's interesting. Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used son of to show a close and intimate connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, who has humanity. Well, there's nothing wrong with this idea as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10, which is where we are here parallel in Matthew 9, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, even though it can be used of to show Jesus was human, however, ironically the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel seven, thirteen and fourteen, as I just said. And behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming, and it's coming up, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase son of man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The son of man was pre- was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than we can get from the an- from the context, Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exiles, which started, uh, which uh, the big one was in 587 BC. In old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of man is essentially the same as son of God in this context. So, We hear that phrase, Son of Man, we don't think too much of it, but by golly, the Pharisees knew what it meant. It meant he said, I am the Messiah. I have the authority to forgive sins, and I'm going to prove it to you by making this paralytic walk. A huge miracle, by the way. This is not one of these. Well, you know, he might have gotten okay on his own. Jesus said that he had authority. He had authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, how did Jesus exercise such authority? He was a man, but he was exercising authority as God. How did he do that? Two two ways, doing great healings and forgiving people of their sins. Jesus' ministry was both. He ministered to the body and he ministered to the soul, both of which often were sick. Then he told the paralytic to go home. Why? So everybody could see and thus prove the miracle and show that he had the authority to forgive sins. Why did Jesus say it's just as easy to forgive sins? to, To make somebody walk as it is to forgive sins? He was probably saying that neither forgiving sins or healing was easier. Both are equally impossible to men and equally easy to God. There's no big deal. I'm God. I can do either one. So Pharisees, quit grumbling amongst yourselves. Quit saying I'm a blasphemer. As I said earlier, when Jesus told the Pharisees that he had the ability to forgive sins, he really needed to heal the paralytic. now. Can you imagine if he had said, I can heal sins, and then he had not healed the paralytic? He wouldn't have had anything to back up his charge. Uh, Excuse me, to back up his claim that he had the ability to forgive sin, So he had to heal that guy. He put himself in sort of a tough spot, but not for him because he was God. He healed the man. Why did he say to pick up your mat and walk? Well, because when the man picks up his walk, paralytics don't pick up their mats and walk. It would show that he was completely cured and there would be no question about it from an evidentiary standpoint. And by the way, Jesus was careful many times to show that his healings to prove to the onlookers that his healings were real, that people could see them or there was testimony about them. And that's something that a lot of time charismatics today or Pentecostals today are very careless about. They'll make a claim to a healing and then they can't back it up. Even though the healing might have occurred, if you can't prove it, it has no evidentiary value. It has no apologetic value. And in fact, opens yourself up to ridicule from people like John MacArthur and Todd Friel. And the professional cessationists out there who down, who spend their weekends and nights and mornings and afternoons running down charismatics. Well, you don't want to give those people ammunition. So if you've got, you got a miracle, be able to prove it or just be quiet about it and rejoice privately. Matthew Knight, and this is my humble opinion. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've now returned from my splice of Matthew 9, 1 through 8, discussing the healing of the paralytic let down through the roof at Peter's house. And that will cover Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. In our next audio, we'll take up the calling of Matthew, Levi, and his dinner that he gave for Jesus. We'll take that up in the next audio. hope you enjoyed this one.